question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Today we'll be hearing a full hour feature on the community planning process underway in the heart of East Vancouver. Zoned out, towers, upzoning, and the future of Grandview Woodland. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. In July 2011, Vancouver City Council voted to direct city staff to begin the community planning process for the Grandview Woodland neighborhood in the heart of East Vancouver. The neighborhood is bounded by Clark Drive to the west, Broadway to the south, Nanaimo Street to the east, and Burrard Inlet to the north. The neighborhood is home to a diversity of residents. It contains a substantial amount of affordable rental housing, including First Nations housing, cooperatives, public housing, and market rentals. The neighborhood is also known for a large and intact stock of large historic homes. Over the past two years, planning staff have engaged with residents on issues ranging from transportation, arts and culture, and housing. In June, the City of Vancouver presented the draft plan back to the community, and to the surprise of many, the plan proposes approximately 10 towers ranging from 22 to 36 stories, and the upzoning of substantial portions of the neighborhood which are currently low-rise rental apartment buildings, duplexes, and single-family homes, many of them with multiple rental suites. And for reference, most towers in Yaletown range from 20 to 25 stories. Residents and neighborhood leaders are shocked, particularly because community members were not consulted on the proposed land use directions. Over the hour, we'll be exploring questions about what engagement appears to mean for planning staff, politicians, and community members. Are city staff and politicians setting the stage for a major battle with Grandview Woodland residents over the future of their neighborhood? Is the neighborhood on the verge of a major transformation with the proposed community plan giving the green light for speculation, demolition, and major redevelopment in the neighborhood? And is any neighborhood safe from the voracious rate of redevelopment and the onward march of developers and glass condo towers eastward throughout the city? 
And if the community plan proposes to drastically alter the neighborhood, primarily through upzoning and significant land use changes, will residents be able to challenge this proposed plan to see the draft plan reflect the neighborhood they want to hold on to? We begin the program by revisiting a controversial rezoning for a high-rise condo tower in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood, which led to a major battle between neighborhood residents and the city. In 2012, the Rise Alliance Development Company's rezoning application for a major condominium development in Vancouver's inner-city Mount Pleasant neighborhood was presented to the community in advance of the public hearing. Feedback from the open house indicated that an overwhelming majority of community attendees were opposed to the proposed rezoning and development. Angry neighborhood residents chided, flustered, and nervous city planning staff dispatched to present the developer's latest rezoning application to the neighborhood. Residents believed that the application was incompatible with their recently passed neighborhood plan, and they objected to the proposed density and height of 19 stories, the increase in traffic, the 241 units of condominiums, and the fact that this would bring very little affordability um, for existing residential and commercial tenants in the area. Additionally, uh, community members were not impressed that the, of the inadequate public benefits offered through the rezoning. Even with this degree of opposition, city staff recommended that the rezoning be approved by council, sending the application to a public hearing, the penultimate stage of the rezoning process. And despite over 100 registered speakers drawn out over a month and overwhelmingly opposed, the application was approved. The land was rezoned for a 19-story, 66-meter or 215-foot condominium tower from a previous zoning which allowed for a maximum of 21 meters or 70 feet. The rezoning was approved in a 9-to-1 vote by council with unanimous support from Vision, Vancouver, and the NPA, while the lone Green Party councillor, Adrian Carr, voted in opposition. City staff recommended that council approve the application based on its consistency with and its support of multiple policies, including the recently passed neighborhood plan uh, in Mount Pleasant, the Greenest City Action Plan, and a variety of other policies. Planning staff considered RISE to be consistent with the city's sustainability policies. And despite being a market condominium-only tower, it was seen as compatible with the city's action plan to address housing affordability and homelessness in the city. The project was approved without any affordable units, despite its location in a predominantly renter-household neighborhood, with a median household income of approximately $10,000 less than the city of Vancouver at large. In an open letter to the mayor and council, a federal and provincial legislator, both former Cope City Councilors, even expressed their concern over gentrification-induced displacement brought on by such a major rezoning and redevelopment. Numerous area residents also challenged the sustainability as density or equating uh, density with inherently being sustainable and provided a critique of neoliberal development models and the assumptions that increasing housing supply, no matter what type of housing supply, always generates greater affordability. And in her final remarks opposing the Rise Tower, Green Party City Councilor Adrian Carr said that, I don't think we should assume that this project will deliver affordable housing. More housing, yes not necessarily affordable housing. And yet, the day following Council's approval of the Rise Tower, the Mayor's office issued a press release touting the approval of a transit-oriented development and stated that building taller buildings with higher density at transit hubs is a key part of how we build a greener city.
And this is Sandeep Johal, an organizer with the Residents Association of Mount Pleasant, discussing her concerns about the proposed rise, tower, and rezoning. And this is from a February 2012 uh, edition of The City. Mount Pleasant being such a hotbed for development because it is such a cool and such a hip area and there's so many small businesses that are unique and independent. And I've spoken to a lot of the businesses, especially in the Heritage Heart, um, Kingsway, Broadway, and Maine, who have these small businesses that have been around. And there are a lot of concerns because of the real estate speculation. Landlords are increasing their rents and leases upwards of 50%. Um, One small business in particular that is a huge community beacon, they actually had to send out emails to their patrons because their rent had been jacked up so high and were asking for support. And the citizens stepped up to the plate and have been supporting them. But, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last. And the fear amongst people in the community and some small businesses is that this development is going to have about 90,000 square feet for retail space. And so, you know, it'll go to the people who can afford to, to rent those spaces. And there's a fear that, you know, if those rents are higher, then their rents will you know, get higher or become higher as well. And then eventually they won't be able to afford their rents and have to move to other neighborhoods. And while the Rise Tower centered around one site for rezoning, the Grandview Woodland Draft Community Plan proposes approximately 10 towers ranging from 22 to 36 stories in the commercial and Broadway area. In addition to that, it calls for substantial rezoning of land throughout the neighborhood, uh, which is home to uh, renters and owners alike, uh, often in low-rise rental housing, um, older rental housing, which tends to be more affordable. So this raises a number of questions uh, beyond just the one tower uh, in the example of the rise battle. This is Jack King. He's the president of the Grandview Woodland Area Council, and uh, here are his thoughts on the draft plan. A resident here since the early 90s. I'm an historian. I've written a couple of books about Commercial Drive. Uh, I'm president of the uh, Grandview Woodland Area Council, which is um, the longest area council in Vancouver, founded in '64, and we're essentially now a residents' organization. Well, the first view of it is is simply one of shock. Um, the amount of upzoning that's proposed is 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 vast. It, it covers an enormous part of uh, Grandview, um, and none of which was discussed in any of the public discussions. So it's, um, yeah, as I say, the first reaction is, is shock, frankly. What aspects of um, that land use, they, they call it emerging directions for the land use, what uh, particular aspects of that are shocking to you? Well, I, I think the, um, the upzoning along all of the major streets, uh, Nanaimo, Hastings, First Avenue, Broad, Broadway, I guess we kind of expected. Um, but the others are um, just blocks and blocks and blocks of row houses and townhouses and uh, four to six story buildings. It's um, not it's not something that matches this neighborhood. This is um, essentially a single family neighborhood with with a, a number of affordable suites. Um, and that's kind of built form doesn't fit here. Let's first uh, talk about the towers. They're proposing approximately 10 towers ranging from 22 to 36 stories. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think we shouldn't be surprised that um, 
somewhere like uh, Broadway and Commercial wasn't going to get a tower, uh, uh, certainly at the Safeway block. Um, I think that's been expected for a while. But the fact that they've expanded that sort of um, transit development area to run all the way from 12th, maybe up to 4th Avenue, is is a surprise. Um, most of the west side of the drive in that area now seems to be um, four to six stories, and that wasn't expected at all. Let's also now talk about throughout the neighborhood, they've called for our proposing upzoning of uh, particularly sections of uh, the neighborhood uh, west of Commercial Drive, which tend to be single-family or low-rise um, older apartment stock, and also along some arterials like First Avenue um, and other places as well. What do you do? You have concerns that this might we might risk losing existing affordable stock. Oh yeah, I think that's especially true in, on um, First Avenue. Um, which has a lot of older houses which are now broken up into affordable suites. Um, the plan suggests that the, um, the RM area um, west of Commercial Drive is not going to be changed, although the wording is, is so vague that it says that you know, selected locations might be variable in height. makes you wonder what's going on. And now that, as I say, that transit zone has pushed north at least as far as 4th, um, the, the gap between First Avenue and Fourth is so small, you can see that being closed pretty quickly. In the draft uh, community plan, there were also a number of other sections in addition to the land use. Um, can you talk about your feelings about those other sections and, and what's contained in some of those? Yeah, the other sections cover things like public space, public realm, neighborhood safety, arts and culture, performance spaces, that kind of thing. And reading them they they do seem to reflect what was discussed at the workshops and i I think that's a positive i think the planners did listen to what was being said there and had we discussed land use maybe they would have listened to that but uh, we didn't ever get the chance to discuss it what did you discuss that there was a particular housing workshop or consultation session what was discussed at that well essentially there were never anything for us to respond to they were they were simply asking us um, what kind of houses we liked in the neighborhood now uh, were there were there things we'd like to see um, what kind of built form seems to work in the neighborhood um, but there was nothing there was no suggestion of large blocks of row houses or towers against which one could respond yeah. Natty Heron is a Grandview Woodland resident also formerly on the Grandview Woodland Area Council, and has formerly been also involved in the Victoria Fraserview Killarney community visioning process. She provided her feedback and comments on the draft plan. Well, that's an interesting question because I myself attended a lot of the workshops. Both I did the face-to-face as well as the online ones, just to give uh, two perspectives. I really enjoyed the face-to-face ones with the charrettes, the design teams, and everything else. And there was a lot of good um, information that came out of it. But I think translation into what was given out at the open houses this past uh, month didn't quite reflect what was said in those design phases and the um, workshops. So I'm a little bit hesitant to say you know if this was a good thing or a bad thing 
I think it could be a really good thing if what people had suggested about the area and designs um, were taken more to heart, and I don't think they were. Um, one of the things that really surprised me was the proposal at Commercial and Broadway for what they're calling transit-oriented development, and they're um, calling for a clustering of up to 36-story towers. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that was really interesting as well because I did not, I was actually blown away when I saw it. I thought, whoa, what's this? And I know that we had mentioned talk about artists building, you know, quarters, um, interactive uh, workspaces, living spaces, but certainly not those many towers. And I know you sometimes dream big and get little, but even if you erode 10% of the height, you're still going to be way over height in a very small, bustling area, and I don't think social economics plays any part of that. I think, I think it's just a one-sided thing, and I don't think it's going to be a good thing. Um, they already say that it's one of the worst hubs for crime. There, you, you go down any given day, and you can see police late at night harassing. You can see transit police hovering. Uh, sometimes you even get up to seven vehicles because a fair evader so we we get you know seven different kinds of police on a fair evasion you get windows smashed out there's um it brings a high density to that area already and higher density i don't think is the answer and in response to feedback the grandview woodland community plan in a june 22nd email indicated that there would be another workshop hosted uh to discuss the Broadway commercial uh, sub-area and the options for a high-density transit-oriented community, in their words. A unique opportunity, an important opportunity, a regionally significant transit hub, they mention. And they also mention that there's been a lot of, and I'm quoting, that there's been a lot of feedback and discussion related to our draft community plan emerging directions document, a fair bit of which centers on the Broadway and commercial sub-area. The directions showcase one approach to high-density transit-oriented development, one that includes the possibility of high-rise towers. And they continue to write that, We understand that there is a lot of interest in looking at other approaches. To that end, we're preparing a one-day workshop that will allow participants to explore a range of options for creating a high-density transit-oriented community at Broadway and commercial. As part of the session, participants will discuss building form, opportunities for housing, office space, retail, and public realm improvements. But even with the recent announcement to host another workshop to discuss a high-density, transit-oriented development centering around Broadway and commercial, it still raises the question, where did this direction come from? So if the proposed clustering of towers did not emerge out of community consultation at the housing workshop, as Jack King suggests, then where did they come from? Natty Heron indicated her own thoughts and theories as to where the proposal for the clustering of towers came from. I have my theories it would be the TransLink plan, the Greater Vancouver TransLink plan for density, because I believe that's where um, we're looking because it's all look synced to the commercial drive, Broadway SkyTrain station. And for TransLink, do you think throwing a bunch of density at one transit station that, um, to my calculation, I haven't seen the numbers exactly, but it's already a high-frequency station. It's very well used. Um, are, we, are, there, are there issues with 
throwing a bunch of density at one location rather than spreading it out more, more equitably across the city? I think that there are issues because, as we know, the more densified something gets and you don't have amenities that go with it, it just creates a monster. We've known this from other cities around North America as well as other European cities that have tried it. So I took Natty Heron's advice and I decided to follow up with TransLink. I spoke with Jeff Busby, a senior transportation planner at TransLink, the regional transportation authority ask you first off to give us an overview uh, regionally in terms of transit-oriented communities and transit-oriented development. Uh, what's the, what are some of the primary aims of uh, this type of development? Um, so TransLink obviously supports um, transit-oriented development because it helps us run a, a more efficient and effective transportation system and, and achieve some of the region's objectives around uh, more travel by sustainable modes, um, and it also helps support uh, other regional objectives uh, that are around uh, preventing sprawl and, and promoting more compact development patterns. With uh, transit-oriented development, we, we see a lot of these going in around the city and particularly around rapid transit lines. Um, what type of coordination is there between municipalities um, and TransLink? So TransLink um, is responsible for delivering the service and uh, the, the infrastructure that's provided uh, to, to make the service possible. So stations, the bus exchanges, and uh, we work really closely with municipalities on uh, making sure that people can access the stations. Uh, so sidewalks, bike uh, connections, road access to the stations. Um, we do less work with municipalities around the, the, the uses and the form of development around our stations. That's really a, a municipal uh, jurisdiction. But we have had examples where we've uh, partnered with municipalities, uh, particularly where we're making a, a really significant change to a, a station, for example. Uh, we might partner with a municipality uh, to have them work through uh, a, a, a plan for the, the land use uh, that then um, complements the, the upgrades that we're contemplating at a, a particular station. Now, with this, and I understand often a lot of this um, is in the domain um, or the jurisdiction of the particular municipality, but to what extent does TransLink um, provide input or review um, the scale, the density, how many people are likely um, to be like the population increase and, and uh, the degree to which that will place pressure on that existing transit infrastructure? Um, I would say our input is mostly in the form of general guidance. So we've published transit-oriented community design guidelines to give municipalities and developers and community stakeholders information about uh, the characteristics of development that supports you know, efficient transit use in walkable and bikeable places. Um, we don't oftentimes give any specific guidance on a specific development proposal unless it has an immediate impact on the station. So where uh, something is proposed that's within close proximity to the station, we do a detailed review. And that review is primarily around uh, ensuring that our transit assets continue to function with that development. So it would be very rare that TransLink would have uh, a view on the uh, use or the form or the 
sort of scale or height of a, de- of a development because that's really not in our jurisdiction. Okay. Are, are you familiar with um, the Grandview Woodland community planning process and the draft plan that's uh, recently been released? I am, yeah. Okay. And so with that, they're, they're proposing, and again, this is in the draft, um, approximately 10 towers ranging from 22 to 36 stories. And what they're saying is uh, across the entire neighborhood itself, a uh, population increase projected for about, of about 10,000 people. And I'm just wondering if that type of population increase will, what kind of pressure that will place upon existing transit infrastructure, particularly um, both of the, the SkyTrain lines and, uh, and the 99B line? So um, we're, actually, we're actually in the middle of a, a project to uh, improve Commercial Broadway Station and uh, the interface with the 99B line. And that's because uh, the, the existing station is quite crowded now, and we're forecasting uh, significant growth in demand at that station. Um, and, and that growth is coming primarily because that the station is a, a hub where people are changing uh, from one train line to the other or connecting to, to buses or traveling for the neighborhood. So we're already uh, planning uh, investments that will increase the capacity of that station to, uh, to accept more, um, more transit users. And can you give me some examples of, of what that would be? Yeah, so this is the second phase of, uh, of an upgrade there. So um, we made some upgrades prior to the Olympics that uh, added additional entrances on 10th and new escalators, stairs, elevator. And we actually relocated the elevator that was in a, a really awkward place uh, prior to the, to the upgrade. Uh, and then the second phase is looking at uh, improved capacity for people connecting from the Millennium Line to, to the Expo Line as well as uh, an improved waiting area for the 99B passengers. And now would there be increased service as well? Uh, yes, part of the reason for the, the station upgrades is that we've completed a, a, an overall strategy for the Expo line that's going to, um, over time, uh, double the number of people that can be carried on the Expo line through um, additional trains, uh, longer trains, uh, and all the supporting systems and, and station upgrades that are that are required to accommodate those. So, and with the Grandview Community um, uh, Grandview Woodland Community Draft Plan, we've spoken to a number of people, and they were really who had been extensively involved in the in the consultation process, and were um, quite shocked to see the the significant amount of upzoning and and the amount of density that is proposed to be landed in the commercial Broadway area. I'm just curious whether this has been um, a push from TransLink or the city. Um, For a lot of people, they felt, I I think there's been an erosion of trust because this never was discussed at the consultation. So I'm just wondering, is there there a push from TransLink or is this primarily coming from the city of Vancouver? No, no, TransLink doesn't have any opinions about the, the size or the scale of the development as proposed. Okay. And in, in sort of in a similar vein, when we talk or even more generally about transit-oriented development and, and communities, um, does TransLink have a preference or, uh, or con- a consideration, is a consideration taken um, with regards to the 10-year the mix? Um, and do you, is it, you know, is the 10-year mix reflective of 
what type of transit ridership uh, numbers you expect? Um, so I mentioned that we produced guidance for transit-oriented communities, um, which I'd encourage you to take a look at if, if you've got the, um, the interest in, mm -hmm. in time. Um, one of the pieces of that guidance actually does speak to housing tenure mix, mm -hmm. and, and what uh, we've found is that um, having a good mix uh, promotes access to the transit system for segments of the populations that are more likely to depend on transit to meet their needs, so uh, seniors, low-income, and other groups that might make take more advantage of, of transit. So having a uh, housing mix is really helpful uh, near stations and near other high-quality transit service. The other thing that tenure mix does is it um, allows for different residents of different ages and, and, and income groups to, to be near uh, transit stations and can serve to activate those stations at different times of day and, and different days of the week, uh, which is really helpful. Uh, transit's more successful if it's utilized uh, all through the day and in, in uh, different days of week rather than everyone sort of getting on in the morning and coming home in the afternoon. With this um, particular proposal, some have also um, been surprised to see that the idea of a transit-oriented development is not just sort of in the direct vicinity, but the extent to which the towers are being proposed, um, you know, around Grandview Highway and even over uh, to the west to Woodland and sort of quite expansive in, in the definition. Is this, is, I, I think some of the concern that I'm hearing from community members is also that perhaps transit-oriented development is being used to land a bunch of density um, where um, perhaps it's out of scale and not uh, necessarily in the in the character of the neighborhood. Does this come up, and is this something that should be addressed? And what role does TransLink play? As you mentioned, uh, maybe a limited role, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess um, uh, TransLink uh, doesn't doesn't have a position on on the specifics in this plan. Um, we are obviously supportive of development near uh, transit infrastructure because it serves these other regional goals, but we recognize it needs to be uh, sensitive to neighborhood context and community aspirations. And so um, this is really something for, for the city and its staff and politicians to work through in terms of what's appropriate for, for this neighborhood. Another concern that's been raised is that landing these towers in this uh, at Commercial and Broadway um, sets the stage later down the road for this type of the same form uh, in the form of, of high-rise towers all along Broadway if and when um, a rapid transit line is, is uh, placed down Broadway. Um, is this also something to think about? And some a, a number of people have said, you know, there are lots of ways to achieve density. It doesn't necessarily have to take this form. Yeah, again, we're, we're the transportation provider, yeah. so we, we don't have opinions around the form. Um, we, we would certainly expect that if major investment is placed in, in the Broadway corridor, that there would be uh, complementary uh, development to, to support that. But it would, again, be in service of these um, broad regional goals around um, livability, compact development, uh, um, development in places where it's easy to walk, bike, uh, take transit. And, uh, and the reality is that uh, the opportunities for those uh, the, the, are, are near stations and near other high-quality um, bus lines. 
So the Metro's uh, regional growth strategy has designated a number of urban centers or town centers throughout the region. And um, just reviewing that, Grandview Woodland itself is not identified as um, sort of one of these urban centers primarily, I would imagine, because it is in the inner city. Um, but again, going back to this, is this type of uh, dump of density appropriate for a neighborhood that already is quite dense as far as uh, the city goes? I don't think we can comment on that. Okay. Uh, it's, it's really not our view on what's appropriate. Okay. And I, I'll just ask um, one last question. Another concern that's come up is um, the sort of Nanaimo, Venables, Commercial Drive, Broadway um, area with an increase in density in the upzoning. Um, some people are, are quite concerned that there's just not adequate bus access or bus service um, and have suggested the provision of like a bus loop to sort of um, provide uh, more transit accessibility. Is this something that the city of Vancouver has approached um, TransLink at all about in terms of increasing accessibility and service um, if we are to see, you know, 10,000, you know, eight, eight to 10,000 more people in the neighborhood? Um, I, I do know that the plan itself calls for working closely with TransLink on opportunities to improve service. Uh, the reality is the region is going to grow by a, a million people, and so um, transit service is going to need to increase all over the region. Mm -hmm. And is, I, I guess, speaking again specifically to this um, part of the city, are we likely, is this, are we likely to see increased transit service, or is it too early to tell? Uh, it's too early to tell on, on the specific. TransLink's Transit-Oriented Communities Design Guidelines state that transit-oriented communities encourage development that is carefully designed to reinforce the local character of communities while supporting density and a mix of uses where appropriate. Development must also support a pedestrian-friendly environment and integrate with transit passenger facilities and services in a way that makes using transit convenient and attractive. So if TransLink doesn't have an opinion, and yet their own design guidelines state that the design, the transit-oriented communities, and the design of them should reflect the local character of the very communities they're being built in, what does the city of Vancouver have to say? After seven days, with over four phone and email exchanges, the city of Vancouver refused to designate a senior planner to be interviewed by the city to discuss the Grandview Woodland Draft Community Plan. And it is perhaps ironic that city staff are refusing to speak to a community radio program providing an important platform for discussion around a neighborhood's community plan, especially when residents perceive a significant lack of meaningful engagement around the future of development and land use in their neighborhood. The city's refusal to provide comment on the community planning process underway, when residents feel like their views have not been properly represented, is especially bizarre at a time when the mayor's office has launched an engaged city task force to address the lack of civic engagement in the city and frustration with public consultation exercises. And to highlight this dissonance in the aspirations of the mayor's office on the one hand and the public consultation realities on the ground, as we see in the Grandview Woodland neighborhood, we are going to hear next from engaged city task force member Lindsay Popes, also a former Cope Parks Board commissioner, on the goals of the task force. Some of the questions that we asked to think about today around this idea that consultation process is a pretend conversation really strikes a chord with me. And more honestly, a lot of people think that public consultation processes are foregone conclusions. 
I think that as a member of the Engaged City Task Force, one of the reasons that I really want to be on that task force is because I've experienced that. And I think that many of the people who are on the task force also feel that way. A little bit about the task force. Uh, it's a very diverse group of people. Some of them have had a vast experience engaging with the city. Some of them have had positive experiences engaging with the city. More likely, though, most have not. We're in the middle of really defining our process on that task force, so I don't want to get into it too much, but in case people don't know, the task force was designed because there was some research released by the Vancouver Foundation that talked about social isolation, how people don't feel connected to their neighbors, and how they feel like they have nothing to offer the city, and that being one of the main reasons why they don't engage. The other reason the task force was established was because the mayor made a commitment to do such a thing in his first term and he never got around to it. And so many organizations have kind of constantly reminded them that this is something that they promised to do. And so here we are talking about public consultation. The four things that we're focused on are the following. Enhancing the city's a way that it engages with residents, specifically immigrants and young people. I think this is important to identify because we're talking about residents, not citizens. So we are looking for people who can't not necessarily vote. We're not just focused on people who are legal citizens above the age of 18. We're looking at all people and a city that reflects children and people who might be on the margins. We're looking at ways to improve the way the city consults with residents on policy. That's obvious. Uh, we're looking at increasing voter turnout. Voter turnout in the last municipal election was 35%. So not even 50% of those eligible to vote participated. And we're looking at enabling community connections at a neighborhood level. So this idea that it shouldn't just be the city engaging with people, it should be residents engaging with residents. One of the main things that we've discovered in the task force is that it's not just Vancouver struggling with these issues. You can go to any city in Canada and you can find them deeply challenged by these things. Uh, you can read them in the major headlines. Toronto is going through a massive battle around a casino. People are waging war on transit in Toronto every day because they feel like the city made a commitment that they're reneging on. Ottawa and the Lansdowne debacle, you know, there are these situations where residents feel that council is completely out of step with what the city wants, the residents want. So that's kind of the context. I think my experience is unique because I've had the chance to be on all three sides. So I was a resident, I still am. I was an elected official. Um, I served from 2002 to 2005 as a COPE Parks Commissioner. And then I actually was staff for Metro Vancouver. So I just want to talk a little bit about those three viewpoints that I've had. As a resident, when I think of being engaged in the public consultation process, I instantly feel distrust. I have a general sense that the way to engage is somehow obscured. I don't necessarily feel that the process is obvious. And I'm automatically defensive. I will have to defend something. I will have to either defend the status quo or defend the alternative option. It's one of a combative feeling. I have an expectation that I will be ignored. But I also feel like if I do make a contribution, that they should do something with it. And then the other thing is that I feel like it will be a battle. Like I automatically feel like I will be engaged in some sort of fight. And if neighborhood residents are gearing up for a fight, is it simply because they are looking for a fight with the city? Or is it because they feel that the very fabric of their East Vancouver neighborhood is being threatened by the proposed land use changes of extensive upzonings throughout the neighborhood and the proposed 10, 22 to 36 story towers in the Broadway and commercial area? Again, Natty Heron. I think it does change the neighborhood in the sense that we all know that 
the higher you go from the sidewalk um, culture, the more removed you are from it, and therefore you don't have to talk to the person on the first floor if you're on the 36th floor. You, it's a wide, wide gap. You just take, go into that elevator and you go home. That's it. Um, you, you're far less interactive with what's happening down on the street culture than you would be if it be, let's say it was a six-story maximum. And I think that's where a lot of places are now starting to see that six stories, four to six stories, is about where culture, that sweet spot, where culture is still available but not too far removed um, from the sidewalk. I find that if you talk to anybody who's been around and you hear the term the no-fun city, the unfriendly city, the people aren't friendly, well, you see it because you take a walk down Yale Town, not very many people are willing to engage with you, a smile as you walk by, a hello, how are you doing, stop by, that isn't there, so that just doesn't bring a community together, and it's less empathetic for something else that may be happening to your neighbor next door, or even using the local economy amenities around the coffee shops you're not building anything because you're in and out you're going home straight up to that floor and and that's where you stay do you have concerns about the affordability of this neighborhood and whether that affordability will be retained um with if if in some form um this these proposed changes and and up zonings go through do you have concerns about uh retaining existing affordable housing stock um, and what are the implications of, of upzoning particular uh, parts of this neighborhood? Well, I think we all know that building high is expensive. It's way more expensive than building um, horizontal. Vertical building, Toronto has come out with, a, they finally realized that, yes, building up is very costly to a city. Um, you have to put in infrastructure and a portion of that money from each of those units goes to that. You're getting less square footage per person, less green space, less sunshine, less light, less social, less uh, local economies because local economies can't, small businesses can't thrive where there's expensive square footage. So you're actually dooming it for failure before you even construct it. Um, Your hope, Vancouver a lot of the buildings that happen, condos that have been built, they've been offshore um, investments um, on the, the premise that speculation will drive the prices sky high and people will sell and bail, um, which isn't really healthy for a city in most respects because you have a lot of dormant, well, non-lived-in um, condos and you're building more, but they're not going to be any more affordable than the ones that are already built that are uninhabited. Um, you have to find that, that place. You have to find that, that, that marriage between high density and where it is as opposed to trying to just put it all into one area. And you, Yale Town is Yale Town, and you can be very creative throughout everywhere else. I mean, 4th Avenue used to be a really cute neighborhood. It's just solely eroded into looking like Robson Street, which means that the high square footage for businesses, you've got only the bigger franchise stores. Very small stores can't afford to stay there. So again, that means that if you want a culture to 
live in the neighborhood, work in the neighborhood, you won't get that because local businesses that would live in the neighborhood can't afford to work in the neighborhood or have a business in the neighborhood. Robin is a renter on East First Avenue, a section of First Avenue which is made up of large single-family homes, which have been divided into suites with reasonable rents for Vancouver. In the draft plan, the city proposes to allow upzonings for four-story townhouses. Robin expressed his concerns. Well, I think that the plan means well. Um, the, the whole idea around the plan is to increase densification um, and uh, sort of stop a lot of growth going out to the suburbs, um, improve public transportation. I'm, I'm down with all that stuff. I think that's the right thing to do is, is to densify the, the neighborhood instead of continuing to sprawl out um, in, into the neighborhood. But I just don't have any trust in developers after, you know, the real estate blitz around the 2010 Olympics. Um, I per- per- uh, personally have uh, been renovated from a previous house and then witnessed that house be renovated and go back on the market for more than double what the rent was before. I don't feel like that house even needed to be renovated. Um, so I just don't have any trust in the development contracts that will be awarded uh, with this plan. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that housing is viewed uh, purely as an asset and a commodity, and it's not viewed as a place where people live, a place where people build a community. Um, And until we can stop looking at housing purely as development and ways to make money, um, we're going to be stuck with this problem. Do you worry that the the rental that you're in uh, could be turned into um, a a four-story townhouse? Um, Yeah, I I do worry. And I feel like, you know, long enough timeline, 5, 10, 20 years, it it will be. Um, I have no doubt about that at all because the house is is in pretty good shape, but um, I'm fairly certain that, that there's a lot more money to be made just by bulldozing the whole thing and turning it into a densified townhouse. And that I'm, I'm, I'm semi-okay with. I'm, I'm okay densifying it. Like I said, it, it's the right thing to do, but there's not enough public consultation. And the fact that I will be displaced and I, it's almost guaranteed that I will have a lot of difficulty or may not be able to find an equivalent uh, housing situation with a similar amount of rent, similar assets, um, and just, you know, uh, a place to live that, that I had before. And it all has to do with, I think, that the, the fact that it's all about making money. It's not about finding housing for people. Um, so, so that's just where I find a lot of, um, a lot of fault in, in, in the way the system is currently laid out. In a neighborhood where 66% of dwellings are rented, compared to 52% within the city as a whole, There are important questions about the possible political and social shifts in the neighborhood if existing housing stock is demolished to make way for new and more expensive rental apartments and condominiums and the higher-income households that can afford this new housing, a process defined by urban scholars and activists as gentrification. How does widespread condominium development and a culture of property ownership affect a neighborhood and a city more broadly? I asked Leslie Kern. She is assistant professor of gender studies at Mount Allison University and author of Sex in the Revitalized City, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship. The, the kind of the home ownership model, um, but also this kind of, as we said already, transient home ownership model where not only are you buying a home, 
you know, live there for a while, but you're already thinking of turning it around as, as an investment, right? So it's it's almost more of a more like a mutual fund than a than a home. It kind of raises the question as to whether condominiums are perhaps a kind of depoliticizing force, right? In that people um, buy into them for for perhaps primarily economic purposes, and then protecting that investment is going to be um, the central concern. And we could compare that to suburbia, where we tend to see that people. Um, it's believed that people become more conservative as they become homeowners. Not only do they have to manage their own, you know, lifelong debt to a bank in terms of their mortgage, but they also want to protect those property values and so things that are seen as, um, you know, potentially controversial land uses and so on come up against a lot of resistance. So we might see a similar trend with condominiums where where people. Um, become less interested in perhaps social justice issues or diversity, multiculturalism or whatever, and, and just seek to protect the value of of that investment on the ground. And I think then, you know, the, the broader implication there is that um, there's a very individualized rationale behind that, right, that people are sort of being encouraged to think in very individualistic terms. And not that I think that all condo owners are somehow naturally predatory and individualistic, but the form of housing itself kind of encourages that mentality, right? And so that was sort of this argument that I was trying to make, that a neoliberal um, rationality around being self-sufficient and autonomous and protecting yourself and creating wealth and investment and so on is kind of trickling down into... Um, the identity of, of the condo owner, whether they want it to or not, really. And so the idea that if you have this uh, a city that's encouraging this sense of pure self-sufficiency, protect your own investment, take care of yourself, protect your own living space, be secure, and so on, then is there any incentive to argue for those things collectively, right? Is there any incentive to join social movements, for example, that try to make the city safer, for women in general, in a broad sense, or is it about just finding a living space where you can feel safe because there's a security guard? So I think there are broader implications then in terms of social justice movements, who's likely to be involved in them, the extent to which people are likely to care about the issues that extend beyond the walls of the condominium or the condominium courtyard. So bigger questions then, as you say, about sort of citizenship, social solidarity, building strong neighborhoods, um, I, I don't want to be overly pessimistic. I, I don't think it's impossible that condo owners or that condos can be good neighbors and and, and be good urban citizens. But the, the form, the economic form, the physical form, and so on, I think present some strong challenges for that to actually happen. Natty Heron is optimistic that there is still time for changes to be made to the plan to reflect residents' concerns. Jack King is also optimistic that planning staff will hear the frustrations of residents and provide the necessary forum for a meaningful discussion around future land use. But Jack King, president of the Grandview Woodland Area Council, warns that if planning staff and council refuse to listen to the community, they should be prepared for a fight. There's always an ability to have it changed. It means a grass movement to say, hey, you know what, I really love my city and I don't want it to look like every other glass tower in Yale Town, or even the financial district, or even outside of that. It's, it's crossing over now. Um, I think that we can do better as Vancouverites, and I think that you still have a chance. There's, um, 
where you can actually go in to the city's website and still put in your thoughts about the plan. So I encourage everyone to do that because you still have time. I think that in the end, if the politicians were smart, they would actually take a look and go, hey, yeah, you know what? We need to develop, develop tourism, and tourism comes to neighborhoods that are distinct and fun. And I think we need to put that back in. I think one of the things we learned in the 1995-2005 city plan process was that it was a good idea to bring the community in from the beginning and talk about everything. And in this, on, in, in this version of the planning, we were allowed to talk about things like parks and public safety, as I said, um, and they listened to that. But there was no specific or substantive discussion about land use. And when we saw, we, when we see the map, it does come as a surprise, and that, it, that must reduce trust, yes. There's a meeting that the area council is organizing for July 8th, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. What's the uh, format and what are you hoping to achieve at that meeting and that forum? Well, the format is is specifically just to allow residents to have their say. Um, I I think that's what we've been missing in this is is a direct discussion about land use. And so we hope that the the meeting will allow as many people as possible to to state their concerns. We hope there will be a number of planners there, and if uh, residents have specific questions, I hope the planners will be willing to at least answer some of them. Um, but the format really is to allow the city to hear what the residents think. That's the purpose. And if out of that, if from a number of people I've spoken to, and I'm sure you as well, again, this shock is uh, fairly widespread. If out of that meeting, planning staff do hear that there's considerable um, um, apprehension and frustration with what they're seeing, do you anticipate we're going to go back to uh, the start and reevaluate some of these things around land use or or you know, will it be enough to see tower sizes, heights reduced? What do you think will come out of that? No, I, I don't think reducing the towers will um, will 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 solve anything. I mean, uh, some of the biggest complaints I've heard are from people on the eastern side of of Grandview, where they're proposing building um, four and five story townhouse developments around schools and around parks. So, so dealing with the towers, say on Broadway, is not going to help. Um, what we would like to see, uh, at the moment there is a rush. They seem to uh, be under instructions to get this all finished by Christmas. Um, that isn't going to happen if the community is going to have a real say. So what we would like to happen as a result of the July 8th meeting is for the city, the planners, to understand that they need to at least take the land use portions back and have some more significant substantive discussions with with all of us and if they choose not to well if they choose not to i think there will be um some serious protests okay looking forward uh and uh, well i guess and and thinking backward to the rise and and that battle at in the mount pleasant neighborhood do you anticipate that same type of mobilization and and confrontation in a sense like is it going to come to that I think it would eventually. Um, <clears throat> it, I, I think um, uh, shovels in the ground when that point comes. That that's um, probably when when the real protests would begin. Uh, one would hope that we can have a discussion and solve those things before 
it comes to that. And you've been listening to Zoned Out, Towers, Upzoning, and the Future of Grandview Woodland. My name's Andy Longhurst, and uh, that about does it for the program for this week. Um, If you want to learn more about the community planning process and the draft community plan for the Grandview Woodland neighborhood in the heart of East Vancouver, uh, check out thecityfm.org. If you missed any part of the podcast uh, or the program, uh, you can also check that out at thecityfm.org. And also find the program on Facebook uh, with the name by searching The City uh, Critical Urban Discussions and on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore fm. We'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what... With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen, and then get riding.